Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we have a special guest here in our podcast studio. It's Peter Shirtliff, of course, an illustrious business career, longtime chairman of Telecom and of course inscribed in the New Zealand Business Hall of Fame. But that's not why I've invited Peter. I've invited him as a friend of the initiative, an honorary member and someone who knows a lot about MMP. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. As I mentioned, we've invited you as a political observer, as someone who really knows a lot about electoral systems, and as someone who has actively campaigned against MMP. But before we get to that, I have counted that this last election, this year, was your 31st in your lifetime. Is that roughly correct? Probably, yes. <laughs> so you've actually followed politics for a long time. What is the first election that you can remember? I first voted in 1954. The voting age then was 21, and I just missed the previous election by Ruska. Right. And now we can all calculate your age. <laughs> <laughs> 1954 was a different time, obviously, but it was also a different electoral system. Actually, I recently had Bill English here in the podcast studio, and we talked a lot about the evolution of New Zealand politics in his time, since he had become a politician in 1990 was when Bill got first elected to Parliament. But 1954 was all very different again. What was politics like back then? It was much more intimate. New Zealand's population would have been probably half what it is today. Yeah. And the electoral basis was really going to town hall meetings in the evening, listening to the local candidate, possibly supported by a cabinet minister, because there was no TV when there was, there was there was no TV. There was radio, obviously. There was radio, and even the radio, we didn't have hourly news bulletins for about two a day, and the newspapers were a huge source of information and opinion forming. And there were plenty of them. Plenty of them, many of them in the provinces. No social media, and everything was slower, much more intimate, more direct, more direct, mm. and. I mean, most people, in a, particularly in a smaller town, would know their local MP personally. It was also, I believe, the first election after the second chamber had been abolished? I don't recall. It was about that time, but I don't recall whether there was still the second chamber at that time when I first voted. But, but in any case, it was, of course, first past the post. It was. FPP. And it remained that way for the next 30 years that you voted. But then something happened, of course, after the experience probably of Muldoon. There was a discussion in New Zealand about whether there could be changes to the electoral system to make government, what, more responsive, more democratic, more representative, and to prevent single-party rule of the kind that New Zealand experienced under Muldoon. And so I think the first was a decision to have a royal commission. Correct. Which was made by accident, I believe. Pretty much, I think. It wasn't in the speech notes. <laughs> From what I have heard, there was a TV debate, including David Longy, where he committed to that without ever having talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. And it was basically a misunderstanding. Yeah. At least that's how I read it. That, that's what I understand. <laughs> okay. And so New Zealand got a royal commission in the 1980s. And what was the reasoning behind it at the time? And was that actually widely understood what that might mean? No. Well, the reason for it was simply a prime ministerial commitment. A blunder. A blunder. <laughs> so we got the Royal Commission. Okay. Nobody really understood it. Nobody had heard much or knew much about proportional representation. Actually, who was on that commission? 
well, I can't remember their names now, but they were a bunch of academics, mm-hmm. none of whom had any demonstrable experience or knowledge of voting systems. Any ex-politicians as well? I don't think so. Might have been one, but basically it was academically driven. So an academic exercise. And then the idea was to figure out by visiting countries around the world what other systems are out there and yeah. how they work and whether they're successful. How did that process go? Well, the start point was the alternative, all the reasonable alternatives to first past the post would be have an element of proportional representation. So let us understand the essence of proportional representation and the variations within it. So they went to Germany and they went all around the place and they came back and they consulted widely. They traveled around the country, did a very assiduous consultation process then came out with their report, which recommended that their preferred system out of those they looked at was MMP. That was their recommendation. But they recommended a system of proportional representation and then that there should be a public choice between first past the post and one other. And the, the first, well, they had a, a vote to determine which of the other three systems should run up against in another referendum, first past the post. I know from our podcast statistics that we have listeners outside New Zealand, apparently even in Malaysia. So if you're listening to us from Malaysia, welcome. And for especially those of you outside New Zealand, we probably have to explain what MMP even means and how it operates. So MMP is mixed member proportional, but what does this actually mean? How does it work in practice? There are two types of politician elected. The first is electorates set up exactly as they traditionally were in New Zealand under first past the post, with a representative elected under first past the post rules. The parties are then given status within the system so that the party determines a list of members who will go to parliament if their party achieves certain thresholds of votes. 5% in New Zealand. 5% in New Zealand. And the object of the exercise is to ensure that New Zealand's tradition of electorate candidates is sustained, but broadens the brief so that the party gets a vote as well as the individual candidate. And the total composition of parliament is determined by that party vote. It is, and that's where the evil lies, because in effect, the voter is really only getting one effective vote. You get two ticks, because the count on election night is for the party vote, Each party gets its share of the candidates that it was elected on and deducted from that number are those people who are elected for the electorates. It's hideously complex, but that's how it works. It is probably too complex for the ordinary voter who deals with this every three years and then forgets about it. Absolutely. I, of course, come from a country that's been operating under MMP, both at the federal level and the state level, for more than 70 years. And I can tell you in opinion polls, typically about half the Germans don't quite understand how this works either. Well, New Zealand additionally, and this was one of the points I made in the campaign I ran against MMP, is that New Zealand has a tradition of candidate knowledge and interface with their constituents. We're a small country, Mm -hmm. and the tradition has been embedded in the voters' minds that I know my politician or I can get access to my politician. You can't do that under the list system to the same extent. And the, in my view, the Royal Commission did not take into account that cultural background that allowed New Zealanders to understand how to vote. 
Well, you cannot legislate for culture. You cannot legislate yeah. traditions. That is one of the problems. I mean, as I say, I come from a country that's been operating on this for a long time. Even there, the knowledge is not quite widespread, but at least it has established a kind of tradition so people have a rough idea how this works. Right. By the way, I should probably explain. I mean, some people think this was introduced by the Allied forces after the war, <laughs> imposed on Germany. That's not entirely true, actually. From mm. my reading of the historical documents, it was a typical compromise because even in Germany there were people who wanted to have proportional representation. Some wanted to have British style first past the post. They couldn't get agreement between the two groups and so they combined the two. Right. So it was a typical <laughs> kind of compromise. <laughs> anyway, so New Zealand had a royal commission and by the time the commission was finished and they presented their results, we moved towards a referendum. And this was when you became politically active probably in a way that you hadn't been active before that, and not since really either. What actually triggered this? Believe it or not, it was a school debate. A school debate? About, at the time the Royal Commission was making its pronouncements and recommendations, my younger daughter, who was a very, very good debater, became a lawyer. She uh, was in the school debating team in her final year, and the subject was something to do with introducing or not proportional representation mm -hmm. in New Zealand in line with the recommendation. Well, as a family, we knew nothing about this. But my wife, who was a, had a very active brain, very intelligent person, she said, I'll do the research. And she was assiduous, and she armed Janet with all sorts of stuff that we talked about around the dinner table. So we became relatively knowledgeable about the pros and cons of proportional representation in general and MMP in specific terms. So it became a family project okay. for you? Well, uh, not at the time, okay. but we became knowledgeable. Okay. And about three years later, when it became an issue that was going to be the subject of referendum, the business community, which I was in the thick of at the time, mm -hmm. were extremely worried about it. And a lot of citizens had a lot of unease. They saw immediately the disconnect that would occur with their MP. So I had a lot of meetings with business colleagues, various people in the year, about a year out from the referendum. Everybody said we've got to have a, a proper campaign. Nobody wanted to do it. I was going to say, when the business community gets worried about something, that doesn't mean that they become active. And a lot of that was based around not wanting to have their business tainted with politics. Yeah. Well, you know, if the business community aren't going to this is my view, take up arms in the right way, well, where's the leadership? And you were chair of Telecom, which I is was. now Spark. I was, yeah. What did your fellow directors think? Well, first of all, they knew nothing about it. I didn't consult them. I had consulted widely with a lot of business colleagues and friends, and they all backed right off. So I didn't talk to them again either. I simply got hold of a fellow I knew in the advertising business. I said, I want to run a full page ad in both the Sunday papers against MMP. How do I do this? He said, write a big check. <laughs> so I said, well, there's the check. You fix it. And I said, you'd better make sure that the media are primed to look at the thing because they won't notice it unless you say a private citizen has run these ads. Did you have a PR campaign, a PR agency? Not, not, not at that point. No. 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 What did the ad actually say? Was it basically it, just text? It, it was text. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very simple. Simple. Okay. Yeah. It had actually a small technical error in it, which in was relation, in relation to the how MMP, which was quite minor. But I used that to create news. 
Oh, it, it's got so they was t- deliberate? Uh, no, it wasn't deliberate, but, <laughs> but I, I, you turn these things to an opportunity. Okay. And I got them running around picking holes in the ad, which was more exposure. Perfect. I, I got huge value out of those ads. Seems uh, to what was the mistake, by the way? Oh, it had to do with something I had said about the Italian experience. Mm-hmm. And it was, look, it was quite minor. Okay. But the opposition were on to me. Well, it was great. So the ads ran and then you told Telecom? Oh, they saw them. <laughs> Even my fellow directors read the papers. <laughs> and we had four American directors because they had a big shareholding and they were very nervous. So you would have received phone calls on that Sunday? Uh, Monday. But anyway, I was determined that I had a right as a citizen. Mm-hmm. This was a family affair. My daughter and wife were in it. It was a private affair and we had a talk about it. And I said, look, I'm doing this. You want me out of here? You want me to suspend my membership or resign? Fine, but I'm doing this campaign. Hmm. And they had a private session and they came back and they said, go to it. And then after that, the campaign became professionalized? Uh, it did. I got, did you gain following out of the uh, adverts? I got a PR company. I can't remember their name now. Hmm. And they were very good. They were very good. They helped me. But basically, I did all my own scripting. Look, it's not hard, Oliver. You've got a cause. You've got passion. You treat people in a civil way. I had the media basically against me on balance. But within a month, they were treating me very fairly because I treated them well. I would imagine that you would have also had lots of people contact you asking how they can join your campaign. They did, so I gave it a name. Okay. Campaign for Better Government. Well, who would be against that? Absolutely. <laughs> so I just invented that, and I, I got a huge support from around the country. Donations started to flow in. I mean, I'd funded the initial operation, but, I mean, I couldn't do the whole thing. But it would have been an uphill battle because, if I remember correctly, the polling was very much in favor of changing the electoral system when you started it, the I think it was about 80-20 in favor of change, something of that order. But the final outcome was extremely narrow. About 53-47, something like that. And what was the time in which you campaigned? I only had six months. Right. So that's quite a shift in public opinion. So had it gone on for another month or so, you would have probably turned this We had the post-mortem, if you like, on the campaign. The experts had a look at it, and they said, you had the momentum, another month you'd have done it. Nevertheless, you lost. I lost. And perhaps New Zealand lost too. Got a new electoral system, MMP, first election, I believe 1996. Yeah. And ever since, we've had a system that is quite a bit different, actually, from the one that we used to have in this country. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. So the birth of smaller parties, the influence, actually, of small party politicians like Winston Peters as a smaller coalition partner, as a kingmaker, which New Zealand didn't have before. How would you characterize the change in political culture that resulted from the change of the electoral system? Well, what I'd like to do is highlight one of the strong claims made by the proponents of MMP. And that was that this would improve democracy and therefore improve our material and economic well-being. Well, we haven't had that. I've tried to blow that argument out of the water. I mean, it's a non sequitur. Well, you can have good or bad government under either system. Absolutely. Anyway, that was how they proceeded. It hasn't delivered. The other point that I was strong on was the point you've just alluded to, and that's the tail wakes the dog. And nobody could understand that. They, they, I couldn't get that across. 
Well, in the conversation with Bill English, I mentioned before, I asked him a question about that. And I wanted to have his view now on whether MMP really changed the functioning of New Zealand democracy. And so Bill actually was a bit more skeptical. He said, well, in previous times, people like Winston Peters would have ended up in one of the mainstream parties and they would have actually formed a wing of that party. And under MMP, they have formed their own parties. But in principle, it wouldn't have been that much different. I think that's possibly right. I think it's an astute comment. But what you've got to look at is the makeup of the parliament between the list and the electorate MPs. And that is an evil, in my view. And the evil is compounded by the fact that the two votes are linked. If you're going to have proportional representation and you went to something like supplementary member, the two votes are separate. And that is a much less, in my view, creates much less damage to democracy. I agree with you in principle, but I would still like to play devil's advocate there is at least one positive side effect of having list MPs. And that is, there are some areas of policy that are not particularly sexy, that people in constituencies in the electorate don't really care too much about. I'm <coughs> talking about maybe foreign policy. Okay. Takes you out of the electorate, takes you out of New Zealand. Nobody votes for people just based on their foreign policy ideas, typically. So if you have list MPs who specialize in foreign affairs, they don't actually have to sound popular. They don't have to go around the electorate and try to get elected, they can actually focus on some other things. And for some parties, that's probably valuable, having people like that, who otherwise would struggle to get into parliament because it's a different kind of skill set you need for that. Doesn't MMP allow the creation of such specialized politicians? It allows for it, but I don't see that it's generated. Mm. And you wouldn't see that as a benefit of actually no. creating an, an alternative path for some people who otherwise probably wouldn't make it. Oliver, New Zealand had a huge tradition of success in all those areas under first-past-the-post. If there is an evil with first-past-the-post that really gets under people's skin, and it came up in the campaign, is the issue of minority wins. In other words, if you've got three candidates in an electorate, the first with the highest number might only get 38% of the vote. That can be said to be a negative. You fix that with double ballot. Yep. You simply have a runoff election against the highest two. Or you have a single transferable vote system, like Australia. Too complex. We got that in the Wellington City here, and it's a mess. Well, Wellington City is a mess for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first MMP election, 1996, and then I believe something like buyer's remorse set in, and so people were really wondering whether they made the right decision. And in 2011, New Zealand then got its second MMP referendum. And you didn't play such a prominent role in that referendum, but you still repeated the arguments from the first one saying, well, actually, basically, I told you so. <laughs> and it would have probably been a winnable referendum for the anti-MMP side had they had proper support of the Prime Minister of the day, and that was John Key. Correct. Absolutely. Why uh, did John Key not actually throw his weight? I don't know. Those? I may have made a mistake in not, in fact, seeking to sit down with him and having one or two lengthy discussions about the experience of the previous referendum, all that stuff, and I didn't. I didn't have a formal campaign structure. I didn't have the status. And to an extent, Oliver, I have to say, I was a lot older and I didn't have the energy. I mean, I... It's hard to imagine seeing you today. <laughs> I mean, I developed other interests in retirement and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, so I tried to do something, but it, it was a bit half-baked. But the, the thing I didn't understand about Key not actively campaigning on this, I mean, first of all, 
he had enormous political capital. Yeah. We're talking about 2011. Yes, we are. So he was really at the peak of his political yeah. career. He also faced an election where he knew he was unlikely to gain an absolute majority of the seats under mm. MMP. He would be reliant on a few smaller parties, as he had always relied on. Mm. So there was ACT, there was United Future, there was the, well, I should say, previous version of the Maori party, which yeah. was very different back then. So he dealt with um, you know, one or two MPs from each of these minor parties. But actually, under first-past-the-post, John Key would have had a resounding absolute majority of his own party. So even from a strategic and well, actually from a tactical position, mm. it didn't make much sense. You would have expected a national leader with that kind of popularity ratings to say, okay, this is now my opportunity to clean up that mess and actually go back to an electoral system that delivers clear majorities. I don't think he gave it the attention uh, intellectually, and let alone politically. And why not? I don't know. Hmm. But it was a lost opportunity. And that referendum got lost once again. Yeah. And I think almost equally narrowly. About did. So really, the engagement of the sitting prime minister would have made a material difference. And it didn't happen. Okay, that was 2011. Now we're in 2023. I don't think there is an appetite for any referendum again on the electoral system. But from your perspective, then, can we at least make it work better? I find that hard to answer. I, I haven't got an answer as to how you'd make it better. I don't think MMP, as it's structured, is do-uppable. I think that New Zealand and its voting future, if you like, will only undergo significant change in principle if and when something quite dramatic happens, such as a constitutional shift to much more localism in politics, something along those lines. Now, MMP wouldn't work under that scenario. So if you were determined at some future time to have a devolution to much more localism in politics, then you would have to have a different voting system. And I think that's where the change might come from. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, Germany is much more devolved and it still has MMP, except it also has MMP at the state level too. Oh, does it? Yes, yeah. okay. So all state parliaments in Germany work under the same electoral model. So localism, as you know, I mean, we're the greatest champions of localism. I know, I know, and I think there's a lot going for that. <clears throat> so do I, uh, but I think you could probably make this compatible with MMP. My question is more, we talked about culture early on. You say that uh, culture, of course, can't be legislated, but now, given the fact that we've had MMP for nearly 30 years in operation, at some stage, you would hope that at least New Zealanders would understand how they can play with this game. And still, it occurs to me at every election that New Zealand speaks MMP with a first-past-the-post accent, a bit like I speak English with a German accent. I mean, mm. we'll never probably changed, but there are some quirks really of how MMP is practiced in New Zealand that I find particularly remarkable. For example, we had the Port Waikato by-election yep. after this election because yep. one of the candidates, the ACT candidate, died during the campaign. Now, this is a remnant from first past the post. Under MMP, it doesn't actually make any sense. And New Zealand probably forgot to clean up this little kind of quirk, the old system. So I, I just wonder whether we couldn't actually then at least play MMP as it's supposed to be. Well, you're asking the wrong person, Oliver. You're seeking to improve this mess we've got. My simple personal principle relates to a New Zealand citizen in a small country being able to look their candidate and their MP and see the whites of his or her eyes. And this list system cuts right across that. 
It introduces much more remoteness overall between the electors and their representatives. So in your view, it can't be reformed, it has to be changed. Yeah. Now, New Zealand seems to have a referendum on MMP every 15 years. So the next one would be in 2026, probably coinciding with the next election. Can we look forward to your next campaign then? I haven't got anything to say to that other than a big, flat no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's just uh, just that I've got too much else on. Well, no, obviously, (laughs) given your level of activity. Well, in which case, at least we've got you on the record with that, and we might then hope that somebody else will actually run with this idea. And maybe after 1993, that was the referendum, the first one, and then the next one in 2011, 2026, we might actually see perhaps another referendum on how to reform this electoral system because I believe after this election this year and after the long drawn-out coalition negotiations that there might be some appetite for change once again. I don't see it arising. I don't see it talked about. Well, It doesn't mean I'm not in favour of it. No, but would you share my observation that at least there was growing unease after the election of how long this took to form a government? Absolutely, yeah. Which raises issues of how sensible it is just from that one. Yeah, that that was my impression at least after the election. It's crazy. Well, okay. Then let's see what happens. See whether they can get this MMP coalition, the first MMP coalition of this kind really New Zealand's ever had, whether they can make this work. And in any case, whether there will be a discussion on either reforming MMP, if it can be reformed, and I know that you would say no, or alternatively, maybe putting this to the people once again as a question whether we want to keep that system. But if you're going to do that, then it needs much more energy than happened in 2011. And it would probably need buy-in from the Prime Minister of the day. Absolutely. Well... Thank you very much, Peter. We look forward um, to future discussions on the electoral system. But for now, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your personal story of campaigning against MMP. And we'll watch further developments with great interest. Thank you, Ola. Thank you.